This is They Create Worlds, episode 38, Origin Story. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. This episode, we are going into the origin of everything. The great beginning. The source. The power of all. A game company that has such a profound impact on so much of the video game industry that oftentimes it's overlooked and EA gets to be vilified for destroying them. We're, of course, talking about Origin Systems, the company of Richard and Robert Garriott. So we talked a little bit about Origin's impact in the past. I'm sure we brought up Ultima at least a few times. Including in our Making of Japanese RPGs article, podcast. Which is like an article. Yes. But we're going to look more closely at the entire broad history of Origin Systems itself covering everything from their inception all the way to its acquisition by EA. And even beyond that. A little bit beyond that. Because Origin, in addition to being a company that was so influential just in terms of the games they released, helping to define genres and game mechanics for years to come afterwards, is also an interesting case study to see how the computer game industry changed over time. Because it started out, like so many companies, as a family affair where you had a creative guy and a business guy getting together to make some games, because why not? Then went through the period of being an affiliated label of larger publishers, and then hit a crossroads as the industry became more and more complex, where it had to decide how it was going to survive in a more competitive market where costs were skyrocketing, and so ended up being acquired by another company, and then serves as a poster child for what does and does not work when you're trying to absorb a highly successful publisher in its own account into a larger corporate machine. Which is a good overview. So to start off this entire story, from what little I know, Richard got the whole Lord British thing from tabletop role-playing game he was playing with friends in college who thought, hey, you sound like a British guy. Almost. Origin is, of course, entirely tied up in the life and identity of Richard Garriott. Without Richard Garriott, there would be no origin, and without origin, it's doubtful that Richard Garriott would have had quite the same degree of influence that he ended up having. We do need to go back to before the founding of origin a little bit and talk about Richard Garriott's early life and career. So Richard Garriott was actually born in Britain, but only because his parents happened to be at Oxford for a brief period at the time when he was born. He is not in any way British himself. He's an American. His father is actually an astronaut, or was an astronaut, Owen Garriott who was an astronaut during the space shuttle era. This is after the moon landings and all that kind of thing. But he did get to go up into space a few times, and he briefly held the record for longest period of time in space during one of his missions that's since been eclipsed. Richard grew up in Houston, Texas, outside the Johnson Space Center. He kind of figured that everybody grew up surrounded by mathematicians and physicists and astronauts and whatnot, because 
he lived in a very unique uh, subdivision. <laughs> Let's put it that way. This definitely was important in the genesis of him as a person because he grew up in an environment that was very mathematically focused, very computer focused. But he also had a mother who was creative. She was an artist. And so you had these dual influences of the technical side of things and the artistic side of things, even though he was never really much of an artist himself. There's still this merging of creative and technical within his own life and within his own household. 1974 was the year that the Richard Garriott that we know was really forged, because this was the year he was introduced to Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. which is how he, like so many other people from that era, gained his first love of fantasy and swords and sorcery stuff. And this was also the year, while he was still in high school, that he went off to a summer computer camp in Oklahoma. This was his first exposure to both computers, but also it was his first exposure to Dungeons & Dragons, which had just come out that year, early in the year 1974. It was at the summer camp that when people were running around and introducing themselves for the first time, as he tells the story, a kid popped into his room and was like, hi, and he responded, hello. I don't know if it was his Texas drawl. I don't even know if he had much of a Texas drawl. He certainly doesn't today. Or if it was just no one ever heard someone say hello instead of hi or hey or whatever the kids were saying back then that immediately caused this kid to say, you sound British, so your name will be British, just British at this point. So that, that's where British comes from. All the kids in this camp were giving each other nicknames, and because he sounded sophisticated, because he could greet someone with a two-syllable word instead of a one-syllable word, he is now British. Makes sense to me. Once he came back from this camp, where he got his love of computers and also his love of D&D, &D, he started a D&D &D game in his own house. But calling it a game really doesn't do its justice, because that implies that you have friends coming over every week and there's a DM and, you know, you play some. But there were constant games going on with DMs rotating in and out all the time. I mean, there was just this real D&D &D culture grew up in his household. And Richard definitely liked DMing. Uh, he did a lot of that. He liked being a storyteller. But other people were also DMing. And the Lord British persona grew out of these D&D &D sessions with his own circle of friends. At the same time, he wanted to continue his computer access and his computer training. And it just so happened that there was a teletype in his high school that was hooked up to a mainframe someplace through time sharing. This is the period of time, the late 60s, early 70s, when computers are starting to penetrate high schools for the first time because there are enough time-sharing mainframes out in the world now that even though a high school couldn't ever hope to afford or justify having a computer on the premises, they could have teletypes or CRT terminals or what have you hooked into some remote computer that they could access from time to time for instruction. Richard manages to convince the school that rather than making him take a foreign language requirement, that he could use programming and learning programming languages to satisfy his language requirement and do an independent study where he basically would be given free reign to create some program as long as it worked at the end of the semester and did what he said it was going to do or whatever, that would, that would be his product that he would be graded on. 
So he creates a series of D&D scenarios because he's really into Dungeons and Dragons on this computer. He numbers them, D&D 1, D&D 2, it's just program names. These were not meant to be commercialized, not meant to be played by anybody. Some of his friends he would test them on, but they were never meant to be anything more than just experiments for this computer class. And, of course, he couldn't really do the storytelling aspect of D&D because that didn't translate into computers at the time, so he had to focus on the dungeon-delving aspect, which was really the main purpose of Dungeons & Dragons when it first came out back in 1974. The idea that you could tell more elaborate stories and have campaigns and all of this was not necessarily written into the DNA of the original D&D, even though Dave Arnison, one of its creators, was very much into that kind of thing. But Gary liked the storytelling aspect, but he had to focus on the dungeon-delving aspect. So he creates all of these games. He does fine in the course, and he eventually is able to convince his father to go half and half with him on an Apple II computer a few years later once the Apple II is released. When he gets the Apple II, he's exposed to an early game by Silas Warner, who is another one of these somewhat forgotten pioneers who was huge, figuratively and literally, because he was over 300 pounds, in the Plato scene. I think we've mentioned Plato before, the educational computer system at the University of Illinois that had super advanced terminals with plasma displays. These were the very first plasma displays ever. He invented the first plasma display. I think back in some of the first episodes that we did, we brought that up. Sure. Silas Warner had created this game for the Apple II called Escape. And the thing that was big about it was that it was a first-person maze. And it would start by drawing the maze in a standard top-down view, and then it would zoom in and rotate and focus, and then you were in the maze. And Richard just thought this was the coolest thing ever. And that is pretty cool, having a 3D maze on something as primitive as an Apple II computer. You could do that kind of thing on high-end mainframes and whatnot, but not so much generally on a puny microcomputer at the time. And this was the inspiration for him taking his dungeon crawling and putting it into the first person. He learned how to do something similar. And that's how he got the game Akalabeth, which is often called Ultima Zero because he didn't have the conception of the Ultima series at the time. The Ultima games kind of build off of it. So he had this game Akalabeth, and he was working a summer job before going off to college at a Computerland store. His boss at the Computerland store saw the game and was like, you know, Richard, this is just as good, if not better, than the stuff that we're selling on the rack over here. You should really sell this. So he did. He spent like $200 or something like that on Ziploc baggies and printed up some instructions. His mother did some, I think, did the, the art. He also had a friend, I think, that helped out some with art. They put together these primitive Ziploc baggie packages, and they sold it. And they didn't sell many copies, but at least one of them made its way to California Pacific on the West Coast, which was founded by a former IBM salesman named Al Rimmers, who was one of the first computer game publishers. But he was basically just grabbing what he could out there amongst hobbyists and independent programmers and whatnot, and just selling it. I think we talked once before about how kind of the first wave of computer game publishers were not very sophisticated. They were just grabbing anything they could from hobbyists and giving it some distribution into retail. So they were not necessarily very discerning. A lot of the games weren't very good, but 
this was kind of the start of computer game publishing, and so Richard Garriott got national distribution through California Pacific. And the game did pretty well. Richard always claims it sold 30,000 copies. That seems very high for that time period. I'm very skeptical that that's true. But that's what he says. I think it was probably less. But it still sold well for a game of the time period, whatever quantifies as well. So he followed it up while at college by creating a game that he was originally going to call Ultimatum, but then had to change to Ultima because there was a trademark on Ultimatum already. He couldn't use that name. He mostly did it himself, though a friend of his that he met through the Computerland store named Ken Arnold helped him with some of what he was doing, especially the uh, creation of the tile-based overworld, which became such a standard conceit in so many role-playing games. And as we talk about in our Japanese RPG episode, was the inspiration for the look and feel of Dragon Quest and then all the games that followed on from Dragon Quest. So he sold this one through California Pacific as well, but this time he ran into some real trouble because California Pacific went bankrupt and ended up, and he had real trouble getting all of his royalties on that game. So that was awkward. To say the least. So he needed a new publisher, and at this point he was getting more ambitious. One could really almost say arrogant. There is a certain arrogance to Richard Garriott, and I don't say that entirely to be negative because... If you're going to accomplish what Richard Garriott accomplished, and there's no doubt that he accomplished a lot in his career, you need a certain level of self-belief and a certain level of arrogance in order to be able to lead an industry in a new direction creatively in the way that Richard Garriott did. A level of assertiveness. That's true. So in his arrogance, you could call it, he wanted the next game to be in a real box instead of Ziploc baggie, and to include a cloth map of the world. This, by the way, was inspired by Time Bandits. Time Bandits? Have you seen Time Bandits? I don't think so. Well, it was a Terry Gilliam movie in the early 80s, and it involved hopping through time, and there was this map that they had as part of the hopping through time, and he thought that was really cool. So Ultima 2 is very much based on Time Bandits, just in its overall conceit. It doesn't in any way follow the plot of Time Bandits. But it takes place over multiple periods of time on the planet Earth, and you have to jump between times using these gates, and the map shows where all of these time gates are. So he wanted that map included. Most publishers were not willing to put up with the expense of doing a full box and a cloth map. One company that was willing to do that was Sierra, Sierra Online, Ken and Roberta Williams' company that would later become famous for the King's Quest series, but this is pre-King's Quest. He publishes Ultima 2 through Sierra. Now, Richard always says that this was like the very first time that there had ever been a game put in a real box instead of Ziploc baggies. Well, no, Richard, it wasn't. You've done a lot of great things for the industry, but that wasn't one of them. Sierra was already putting its games in boxes before that. Infocom had its games in real boxes and even included feelies like Richard's cloth map. They were already doing that. Probably the first company, though I can't be 100% certain, that had ever put a game in a box was Strategic Simulations Incorporated back in 1979. Well, they were founded in 79, but their first games were released in 1980. 
because it was a wargaming company. And Joel Billings, the founder of that company, really wanted to emulate the board wargame industry like Avalon Hill and SPI. And their games came in big, solid boxes. And so his game was going to come in big, solid boxes. Both Infocom and SSI were releasing games in boxes two years before Ultima 2 came out. So he keeps saying that. He even said that in his book that he just wrote that we briefly mentioned at the end of the last episode. And it's like, can't give you that one, Richard. Just just can't do that. Sorry. But anyway, Ultima 2 comes out through Sierra. And then Sierra goes through a devastating period because they had decided, or rather their investors had helped force them in a way to decide, that they were going to enter the console market right at the point the console market crashed. So Sierra almost goes out of business. I mean, they come very close to being wiped out before King's Quest turns them around in 84 and in 85. So once again, Richard has trouble collecting royalties on his game because a company is in the process of falling apart. Unlike California Pacific, Sierra survives, but it's a very close thing for a while. Both times that he had this difficulty, he turned to his older brother, Robert, for help. Robert and Richard were really not all that close. I think there were four Garriott siblings, three brothers and one sister. I could be mistaken, but I think there were four. Robert and the other brother were kind of of an age, and Richard and his sister were kind of of an age. And there was enough age gap between them that he hung out much more with his sister, and Robert and him were not really that close. But Robert was an engineer. He had worked for Texas Instruments. He had an electrical engineering degree. And then he also went and got a business degree later on. So he has some technical know-how, and he has business know-how. When he needed some help trying to get all that was coming to him from California Pacific and from Sierra, he turned to Robert to kind of help him navigate that business and legal side of things. After going through this twice, Robert basically says to him, you know, rather than doing this through these other publishers, why don't we just found our own company? Because maybe it won't work out, but one thing I can guarantee you is at least you'll get paid before anyone else does because I'm running the company. <laughs> so it's because of this difficulty with these early publishers that he was dealing with that Richard comes together with his older brother, Robert, and they found this company, Origin Systems. Why'd they choose the name Origin? That's a good question, but I don't know where the name comes from. Hmm. It's a be I mean, origin, obviously, it, it means a beginning. I assume it's just something that sounded cool to them because they were starting out together. This was the origin of their partnership, and it felt like they were creating something new and exciting. And I do know that it was Robert, who was not generally much of a marketing person, that came up with the slogan, We Create Worlds, which I just think is a great slogan. Obviously, we've kind of slightly pilfered it for the podcast and for my book title and all this other stuff because I always. Just kind of thought that was cool. We create worlds. It starts in the garage of their parents. By this point, Richard has dropped out of school. He had been going to college at University of Texas at Austin. Once he started making money on these computer game things, he decided to drop out of school and do the computer game stuff full time. And his, his parents let him. 
his parents didn't think that this was going to be his career, didn't think this was something that was going to last. But they were practical enough to understand that at least it was something big right now. And so they were basically said, go ahead and pursue this thing while it's hot, but it's not going to last forever. And once it's done, you're going to go back to school and you're going to get your degree. Of course, that never happened because it never stopped. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's, it's nice, at least, that his parents were supportive enough to see that there was something worth doing here, even if they didn't think it was going to last very long. It's something that was important to their son, and they were of the means that they could help him achieve the dream that he had, with the caveat of, hey, if this doesn't work out for you, we really want you to finish up your degree and get a job. Pretty much. So they found it in the garage uh, in his parents' house. It's a big garage. It's a three-car garage with a loft. So they actually found the company and run the company at the very beginning out of the loft in the garage of their parents' home in Houston, Texas. Must be a really big garage to have a loft in it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like I said, three-car garage. It's pretty substantial. So there's some room there. It's not the best of quarters. The Texas cockroaches get in there sometimes, drawn to the heat of the computers and drawn to any trash that they left in the waste cans overnight and that kind of thing. But there were cots up there. They could have people actually sleep up there and everything. And so they kind of had this going. It was small in the beginning. It was the two Garriott brothers. They brought in a couple of people that they knew from Sierra. Jeff Hill House, the first employee they ever hired and the last employee EA ever fired when they shut down the company. So he was literally there for the entire span, the only person that was there from the very beginning to the very end of origin. He had been doing work through Sierra, and he came. Had he ever been interviewed? I think so. They also brought a public relations person in that had been working for Sierra, Richard's high school buddy, Chuck Boucher, known as Chuckles in the Ultima series. He put a lot of his friends into the games. So Chuck Boucher was a high school friend that also went to college with him he had been in the D&D groups in high school, and then Richard had helped kind of get him interested in computer game programming in college. He submitted games to Sierra, just like Richard did. And so he had a little programming experience under his belt. And so he was brought into the company at the very beginning as well. That was the company at the beginning. It's similar to how so many of the early companies were founded. This is basically the path that all of the early computer game publishers took. They started out by having a creative person that started fiddling around with computers in their spare time and were starting to make their own games, then decided that there was some value to selling these games. They would often try doing it through mail order or through one of these early publishers like California Pacific, then discover that that really wasn't the best way to get them profits on their own games, and so they would usually turn to someone they knew, often a family member, in order to found a publisher to publish their games. That's basically how Broderboon got started. That's more or less how Sierra got started. Even some of the others were similar, even if it wasn't family members. Sirius Software was a partnership between a hot young programmer, Nasir Gabelli, and the owner, or the manager, rather, of a computer store, Jerry Jewell. That's how most of the early computer game publishers formed, and Origin is no exception to that. 
Origin was founded a little later than most of those others. It was founded in 1983 because Garriott was publishing his games through other people longer than some of these other people were. But they were one of the very last of these, let's get a computer guy and a business guy, often a family member, together under one roof and let's put some games out. So we have Ultima 1, Ultima 2 is done. They're working on Ultima 3 as their debut title. Yes. How are they going to do the distribution for that? Well, at first, they just do what so many other companies have done before them, and they do all of that themselves. They package it themselves. They call distributors or retailers themselves and move that product themselves. And he did a box art this time, too, Mm -hmm. just like he wanted for Ultimate 2. Oh, yeah, it's fully boxed and everything. They definitely discover that that's something of a hassle. So when it comes time to do Ultima 4, which they know is going to be an even bigger game, because every Ultima game uh, of these early games outsold the game that came before it. Each one becomes a slightly bigger hit than the one before it. Each one is a better game than the one before it. Richard always starts from scratch with each game. He throws everything out in codes from scratch. New engine, new everything. He may reuse some of the graphics or what have you, but the code is new each time. That's quite the undertaking. It is. And that becomes a bit of a problem, as we'll discuss in a little bit. But that's just the perfectionist in him didn't want to start with something inferior because as he does more games, he becomes more adept at coding and he doesn't want to start with something inferior when he knows that he can do so much better by the time he's doing the next game. So he just starts over. (laughs) Ultima 4 is going to be even bigger and even more complex, and they know this. So Robert decides that they need to get in on one of these new affiliated label things that are going on. And we've talked about affiliated labels several times, including in recent episodes, and that's basically where you do the publishing in the sense that you duplicate the games, you package the games, you put them all together, but then you give them to a larger company in order to do the distribution part of it for you. And they're the ones that deal with the retailers and get you on store shelves. And it lessens some of your risk and lessens some of your costs, but still allows you to maintain greater control over your product than if you just signed on as a developer for another company. So they sign a three-year contract with Electronic Arts as an affiliated label. They're one of the first companies to join the Electronic Arts affiliated label program. That's how Ultima 4 and subsequent games are distributed is through Electronic Arts, though, of course, Origin remains the publisher. By this time, the company is no longer in the garage in Houston. Well, they even pretty soon after that, they moved out of the garage, but they were still in Houston. By now, the company is no longer a Houston company. It is a New Hampshire company. What attracted them to New Hampshire? So the one person in this entire tangle that actually had a real kind of day job was Robert Garriott's wife, Marcy. Robert Garriott's wife had a very, very good job with Bell Labs up in New England. Robert was actually commuting back and forth between New Hampshire and Houston. That's quite the trick. That's right. And at the beginning, when it was a small company, it was maybe spending a couple of days or whatever down in Houston. But You can do that over a weekend or something. Mm-hmm. 
But it got to be that as the company was growing and the company was getting bigger, that his attention was there more and more, and he was having to do longer and longer trips between these two places, and it just wasn't working for him anymore. And so Robert basically issued an ultimatum, and he was like, okay, look, Marcy is in a job now where she should, within two years, get promoted to an even higher level executive position where she'll basically be able to pick wherever she wants to live. Where she lives will no longer be important in the work that she's doing. So why don't we move the whole company up to New Hampshire for just a couple of years, and then at the end of that period, she'll get a promotion, and we can decide where we want the company. We can go wherever we want. So that's what they do. They all pack up in the winter and drive from Texas all the way to New Hampshire. In the winter. Yeah, there were some snowstorms. As uh, Richard Garriott puts it, these Texas drivers were terrorizing motorists all across the country (laughs) as they tried to navigate to their new home in New Hampshire. That's where they end up setting up for the next few years for much of the rest of the 1980s is up in New Hampshire. A lot of people don't realize that. Origin is identified with Austin. That's where the company existed the longest. And a lot of people just kind of assume that they were always in Austin. But no, they were founded in Houston. And then they went up to New Hampshire. And it was only later that they went down to Austin. Once they were done with the whole cold and snow and ice and driving. Yeah, that really didn't sit well with uh, these Texas boys. (laughs) So meanwhile, of course, the Ultima games are getting bigger and more sophisticated. Ultima 3 is really the first one where he has all the kind of base mechanics figured out of integrating dungeon exploration and getting hints from NPCs and all of this kind of thing that you associate with a traditional JRPG, because Ultima 3 is the one that really influences the JRPGs. With Ultima 4, of course, he decides to take them in a more philosophical direction and make morality as big a part of the game as the actual going around and killing monsters and getting loot and leveling up and all of that. And so he introduces this concept of the virtues. We won't delve into any particular Ultima game in in a lot of depth for the purposes of this episode, but that's really the first time that morality had ever played a role in an RPG. And obviously that is just a huge paradigm shift because today there are still tons and tons of RPGs that use some kind of morality system. Oftentimes it's a little more simplistic, really, quite frankly, than what Richard was doing in Ultima 4. Oftentimes it's just you have good and bad kind of scale, and if you make this choice, you go more to the bad side. If you make this choice, you go more to the good side. But still... Think Knights of the Old Republic. Right. But still, that's, that's a huge leap forward. So Origin is one of the prime companies here that has established what we think of as the RPG. Wizardry deserves a lot of the credit, too. Origin can't take sole credit for that, but they've done that. They've provided the base for what becomes the JRPG, essentially, again, along with wizardry. And now they've also introduced the entire concept of morality into an RPG. So already by 1984, 1985 here, Origin is one of the most influential companies in the way that a very large portion of the video game industry is developing around the world, not just in the United States, but also in Japan. 
And they also are a prime example of the kind of small boutique publisher that was able to flourish in the 1980s because companies like Electronic Arts and Activision that were a little bigger would take on this distribution responsibility and allow them all to thrive in their little niches. So a company like SSI could keep making their war games and a company like Origin could keep making their RPGs and they didn't necessarily need to be a full service publisher because the most important aspect of being a large publisher and diversified publisher was being able to get retailers to listen to you and get retailers to give up their precious shelf space to you. And by attaching themselves to a bigger company like an Electronic Arts, that's taken care of for them. They have that grander presence that makes them have more weight in the actual store shelves. Right. So it's really no surprise that there was so much diversity in 1980s and early 1990s computer gaming with these small publishers like Origin, just because it was it was a perfect balance between the big publishers having the distribution and games still being simple enough that you didn't need a large team to put them together. Well, that, sadly, of course, comes to an end, and that kind of where the next chapter of that origin story is going to end up going, because the problem with origin is that it is entirely dependent on Richard Garriott and his Ultima franchise. Mm-hmm. It's just entirely dependent. They release other games. There are other programmers working for the company, like Chuck Boucher that we mentioned earlier, and he's not the only one. There are other people making games for the company. But none of those games are ever that big a hits. They are dependent on Richard Garriott to get these Ultima games out. He's Origin's version of John Carmack. Yes, he really is the indispensable man. This is okay when Richard can crank out an Ultima game essentially every year. It becomes less okay when the games are becoming so big that he can't put one out every year. Because they really need that big hit each year to survive. And so this becomes a real problem after kind of Ultima 4 and then Ultima 5 takes a long time and Ultima 6 takes even longer. They make a real mistake in platforms because he's an Apple II guy. He's been an Apple II guy since the beginning. And he hangs on to the Apple II just a little too long. Because by Ultima 5, the Apple II is just not the mainline game system anymore. The Commodore 64 has supplanted it, and the IBM PC is right around the corner and supplanting everything. So they have some trouble as they have to adapt to this new platform. And they just have the trouble that the games are bigger and more involved, and other people start having to be brought in to help. One of the big ones is Warren Spector, whom Richard Garriott first met through Steve Jackson Games, because Steve Jackson Games was in Austin, and Richard went to school in Austin. He actually met Steve Jackson through the Society for Creative Anachronism, which both of them were involved in. Richard Garriott was hugely involved with the SCA during his college years. 
So they remained friends and they remained in touch. And he would come over and play tests new Steve Jackson games, you know, invitation only kind of things. And so he met Warren Spector, who was also working at Steve Jackson games. And then Warren actually went to TSR and actually worked for TSR briefly. But then when Richard started knowing he needed more help getting some of these concepts together, he brought Warren Spector into the company. And so Warren Spector becomes a very big part of the origin story because he serves as a producer on a number of important properties at the company, including some of the Ultimas and Wing Commander. His design input was not necessarily very big on all of those games, but that was another guy that was helping to develop product alongside Richard. And they needed that, but even then, it still wasn't quite enough. Especially after they finally, I think, kind of got away from their affiliated label things. They were with EA through 1987. And then they had a bit of a problem with EA. Because EA decided to release a game created by some other guy that was a blatant ripoff of Ultima. What was the name of that game? It was a game called Death Lord. It's not in any way important. There were lots of Ultima clones out there. I mean, everyone was ripping off Ultima, as people have always ripped off popular games. And in the past, Richard had even been successful on certain occasions in forcing other publishers to license the look and feel, essentially, of Ultima from him. He was able to do that with SSI when SSI inadvertently published a game that was very, very similar to Ultima, not realizing it because SSI was a wargaming company. They didn't care about RPGs. They were able to get this licensing deal. But to have their own distributor publish some, someone else's ripoff really hurt Richard Garrett very deeply, especially after Electronic Arts refused to pay any kind of license or pay any kind of restitution for doing so. So this started a real fight between the two companies. Because of the situation, Richard and Robert wanted to terminate their deal with Electronic Arts and go in with another company. In order to do this without getting sued for breach of contract, they basically had to be a little cute. The contract required that EA would purchase a certain amount of product from Origin every year of the deal. Mm-hmm. Final year of the deal, I think it was $9.3 million, and we're, we're in the final year of the deal now. In order to make sure that Origin would not have enough enticing product for Electronic Arts to make such a large purchase from them, they deliberately held back a remake of Ultima 1 they were doing, because by now the rights had reverted back to him, until they signed a deal with a new distributor, which uh, was going to be Broderbund, actually. They were going to be one of the first companies to join Broderbund's brand new affiliated label program. Once they were relatively confident that EA was not going to purchase enough software for the deal, they informed EA that they were going to terminate their agreement and go sign with somebody else. Well, this made EA furious. <laughs> so first of all, EA went through the language and they found some places where they could reduce the, their obligation just through some of the contract language. But it, their obligation still came out to something like $8.1 or something like that. So EA just basically went, okay, we're ordering $8 million worth of software from you. We don't care what you send us, but here's, here's the purchase order for $8.1 million worth of software. Okay. 
And you see, here's the thing. The publisher is responsible for compensating the retailer if material comes back, not the distributor. Mm. So by ordering $8 million worth of software, they really put Origin in a vice because they knew that they were probably not going to sell all of that software. But then when it started coming back from the retailers, Origin would have to eat the software and compensate the real retailers. So they had them in a trap almost because they could literally drive Origin out of business just by ordering software. And because of the nature of their distribution agreement, Origin was required to send them the software that Electronic Arts ordered. Not a good situation to be in. Exactly. So Broderbund does end up coming in and saving the day, and they work out a settlement with Electronic Arts to kind of get out of this mess. That really cemented Richard Garriott's bad, bad feelings for Electronic Arts and for Trip Hawkins as kind of the Antichrist. He put in some very unflattering portrayals of EA and of Trip personally in some of the Ultima games after that. He was really not happy with Electronic Arts at all. Flash forward a few years, though, and he needs a publisher. He needs a larger company that they're actually going to sell out to because it's getting to be too much to wait for each new Ultima game to come out. The games are getting more expensive, and publishing of games is getting more expensive because they're appearing on more and more and more discs, and discs are expensive. Not expensive relative to cartridges or many other things out there in the world, but expense is expense, and if you're putting games on like six, seven, eight floppy disks, that gets expensive. And Real so, quick. So they can't afford to be their own publisher anymore. They don't want to go the venture capital route, because they don't want to give up control in a way. I mean, obviously, selling out to another publisher is also giving up control. But if you take venture money, you're giving up control, but it's still your company. And so that didn't sit well with them. The idea that they would still be kind of owners of the company, but would be beholden to other money people just didn't sit well with them. So they knew that they were going to sell. They end up going back to Electronic Arts. At this point, Trip Hawkins has left the company or is mostly transitioned out of the company because of the whole 3DO thing. We talked about that in our most recent Electronic Arts episode. So the guy they were maddest at was not there anymore. And they had to admit that EA was good at what they did. And EA was a little weaker in role-playing games. And they were a little weaker on... PC games, now that they were transitioning more and more to consoles, obviously they had started on computers, but they were focusing more and more on consoles. So there was a fit there, and they felt like they would have a niche where they could continue to be somewhat independent and continue to thrive under EA while getting the funding they needed to move the company forward. Again, you can see how Origin really represents the transition that all small publishers faced. During the 1980s, the small publishers could flourish by latching on to larger distributors. But by the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s, games were just too expensive. They involved too many people. They involved too many resources, and they took too long to make that the small publishers that relied on one or two hits to sustain their entire business just couldn't do that anymore. And so your only choices were go big, get bought, or go home. And... That's pretty much what happened during this period. The small publishers of the 1980s either 
expanded and got really big by either by combining with other companies or by increasing their internal development so that they had more than just one or two hits, or they were acquired by another company in the business that was bigger than them, or they just eventually petered out because the business model didn't work anymore. So effectively, Origin gets acquired by EA. Yes, in 1992. In 92. Mm-hmm. At what point does the Wing Commander franchise get brought into this? Sure. So now we'll take a step back again, back into the late 80s, when Origin is still independent, and get back to kind of our other track of how influential they were in the types of games that ended up coming out in, in later years. Wing Commander was the brainchild of Chris Roberts. Chris Roberts was an American, but he actually spent much of his childhood in the United Kingdom. His family was in Britain. So he became very big in the British scene. He had a run-and-gun game called Striker's Run that did very, very well. After he left England, he relocated to Austin, Texas. And he was trying to create a new action RPG which ended up being called Times of Lore. He was very influenced by the console adventure game output like The Legend of Zelda. He felt that console gaming was fundamentally changing the way that people were playing video games and that some of these lessons in interface and in gameplay really needed to be brought into computer games and computer role-playing games as well. So he was creating this game, Times of Lore, and he was using an artist named... Denis Loubet, I I assume it's Loubet, it's L-O-U-B-E-T, it's French, the T is usually silent, but since he's American, for all I know, he pronounces it Loubet or something, but I'm going to call him Denis Loubet. He had been using a local artist named Denis Loubet who had done work for companies like Steve Jackson Games, which was in Austin, and like Origin. And then Denis got hired by Origin as an artist. Chris, who's working independently, suddenly doesn't have an artist anymore, and he's like, who stole my artist? So he discovers that Dennis had gone to work for Origin, and that's how he discovers Origin. And so then he's like, I've got this game. And they're like, great, let's do that. (laughs) So they end up publishing his first game, Times of Lore. Once he's in the company, the early games he does are RPGs, but once he's in the company, he starts interacting with another contractor, he's not an employee of Origin, named Paul Newrath we've talked about before. Paul Newrath was an MIT guy. He was a New England guy. And he first got in with Origin during the period that Origin was up in New Hampshire, was actually up in New England. He had worked on a few different properties. And one of the things he had worked on was the Chuck Yeager flight trainer game that we briefly mentioned in our EA episode. There was a game published by Electronic Arts that was created by a fellow named Ned Lerner. So this was a a flight simulation. Paul Newrath was very interested in taking some of what he learned in making flight simulators and applying that simulation aspect to an RPG. And so he created a game, it was published in 1989 through Origin, called Space Road, that had space combat simulator portions to the game in addition to traditional RPG portions in the game. It was a combining of the two genres. 
Interesting. Chris Roberts found that very interesting. And he spent a lot of time talking with Paul Newrath about this. And this got into Chris Roberts' mind to take some of the games and some of the concepts that he really liked, like Elite, the British open-world space trading and space combat game, things like Battlestar Galactica, and do an action game, a simulation kind of game, that also told a story. Taking it kind of in the opposite direction, because Space Rogue was primarily an RPG, but it had these space sim elements. Basically, Chris Roberts drew from that, take it in the opposite direction, which is make it primarily a space simulator, primarily this action game, but weave some story into it. And so that's kind of how he came up with the idea for Wing Commander, in addition to these other influences like Elite and Battlestar Galactica and other things that he enjoyed. He wanted to tell a story through an action game. Wing Commander becomes a big hit, and it's a really important game in pushing the technological boundary on the PC, because this was one of the first games that made people really want to upgrade to a 486 computer, that really made people want to have a sound card in there, because it had a pretty dynamic musical score. This was a game that really pushed people to upgrade. At first, he wasn't sure that he should do something that was so state-of-the-art, because he put it on as advanced a system as he could. He targeted as advanced a system as he could, basically. He was not sure he should do that at first, but then when Microprose released a flight simulator called F-19 Stealth Fighter, that became a big hit, because this is a period of time when military simulations were very big on the PC. That became a big hit, sold 500,000 copies, even though it required a state-of-the-art machine to run. He figured, well, if this game can do that, then my game can do that too. And so Origin, through Wing Commander, really took the lead in pushing us into a new multimedia future with faster processors and better graphics and better sound and all of these things. It really marks the beginning of the IBM PC becoming a technological showcase for games because it comes along at just the right time when the PC finally has the multimedia capabilities to do impressive games. And then here comes something that pushes the PC to its limit. And Wing Commander becomes the second franchise besides Ultima that is kind of the tent post, the pillar franchise of Origin at that point after that first game was released in 1990. Paul Newrath, meanwhile, is not completely satisfied with how Space Rogue turned out because even though he had the simulation elements in there, they were distinct. It's like the space sim sections were very distinct and separate from the RPG sections. What he really wanted to do is take the concept of immersion in the environment and realism of the environment that a flight simulator brought like the games that he had worked on with Ned Lerner, and combine that with the RPG concept of gathering loot and leveling up and fighting monsters and all of this. But he also wanted it to be more emergent. He wanted it, like in a simulation, to be multiple ways that you could get through an encounter. So if you have a monster, maybe you fight and kill it, the standard thing that you do. 
maybe you're able to talk to it and you're able to convince it somehow to let you pass. Maybe you can bribe it. Right. Maybe you can bribe it. Maybe you can distract it. This idea that there are more ways to get through a particular puzzle than brute force. And so he wanted that, and he wanted the immersion of a simulator, so a 3D environment, a first-person view. There were some games that had kind of done that before. There was Dungeon Master, which is another defining moment in the history of RPGs, because that was a game that had this first-person view, and it was one of the really first GUI interfaces in an RPG, so you could actually interact with the environment pointing and clicking, and you had menus where you were interacting with your items by pointing and clicking. You had the paper doll that you put your equipment on, which became such a standard thing. I mean, it hadn't been done before that, because without a GUI, it really doesn't make sense. But Dungeon Master and the games like that were still technically turn-based. They were not technically fully real-time. They were step-based. You would take a step and things would change. You would take a step and things would change. But it was changing as you walked, as you took each step. It wasn't actually a fully real-time. If you just sat there and didn't input anything into the game, the game would just sit there and do nothing. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to go a step further from games like Dungeon Master and actually make this fully real-time, first-person, 3D immersive environment, combining what he knew from making flight simulators with what he knew from making RPGs, since he'd done both. In order to do this, he founded a new company called Blue Sky Productions. This combined some people that he found in various places, most importantly Doug Church, who was a brilliant programmer who was an MIT student at the time, also some ex-Origin employees, because by this time the company has moved from New Hampshire down to Austin, and most of the company wanted to go back to Texas, because the core people that had gone up north were Texas people. But by this time, they had some people from New England, from the local areas, part of the company, too. And none of them wanted to go back down to Texas. Right. So there were a few kind of leftover origin people. And so he brought a couple of them into his Blue Sky Productions as well. And he also brought in a guy that had been with Ned Lerner's group in order to do his texture mapping routine. So he amassed this group of programming creative talent, partly students, partly origin people, partly this and that, and created Blue Sky Productions. They began work on a game called Underworld. He had a great difficulty selling publishers on this concept, and I don't know exactly why. They just didn't feel like this would be a big thing. It might have been because it was really pushing the technological boundaries. I mean, you needed a really high-level PC, and even if you had a really high-level PC, the game world was still just a very small window. It had barely enough horsepower to make the whole thing work. It may have been that. It may have been that it was just too new. Who knows? He was having trouble, but his old buddies at Origin decided that they would take a chance on it, and they thought that it would be a good idea to brand it with the Ultima name. It didn't start out as having anything to do with Ultima. It was just called Underworld. Origin had been trying to do more spinoffs in the Ultima universe because, as we talked about, they couldn't wait for Richard to create another Ultima game every two or three years. And so they were trying to boost sales of other products by calling them Ultima games, too. It's like, no, really, this is also an Ultima game, even though it's not a Richard Garriott game. They put Warren Spector on it as the producer, 
and they changed the name to Ultima Underworld. And that's where that entire franchise came from. Exactly. This game is one of the most influential games ever, really, because there is so much that started there. This was the first when it was in development. Now, it was in development for a long time. So it was beaten to the market by some things with similar mechanics. But this was essentially the beginning of the first-person shooter. I mean, it wasn't a shooter. But it was when John Romero, who had briefly worked at Origin, and -hmm. had worked with Paul Neurath when he had worked at Origin, it was when John Romero learned about this new texture-mapped first-person game that they were developing that he went to John Carmack and said, hey, they're doing this. Do you think we can too? And John Carmack's like, thought for a moment, like, yeah, we can do that. And that was the beginning of Wolfenstein 3D. They had done a couple of other 3D games before that. But that was the beginning of Wolfenstein 3D. It was influenced by Ultima Underworld. And, of course, Wolfenstein 3D begats Doom, and Doom begats everything. And you can trace that back a little bit to Ultima Underworld. But there are other things you can trace back as well. The Elder Scrolls was another first-person immersive RPG world experience. The very first Elder Scrolls game, Arena, while it was in a larger world than Ultima Underworld, was very similar to Ultima Underworld in its approach to an RPG. And Ultima Underworld was a huge influence on the first Elder Scrolls game. If you're playing Skyrim today, you owe a big debt to Ultima Underworld. If you're playing Call of Duty today, you owe a big debt to Ultima Underworld. This is a game that kind of establish that template. And then, of course, Ultima Underworld within Blue Sky Productions, which actually merges with Ned Lerner's company and then takes on a new name, Looking Glass Studios, decides to take forward the immersive elements of Ultima Underworld and expand them even more. More options, more possibilities for different ways of solving things. Blending the RPG mechanics more and more with shooter mechanics, with stealth mechanics with puzzle-solving mechanics, all within the context of this immersive open-world environment. You get System Shock from Looking Glass as an evolution of Ultima Underworld. Now, System Shock is published by EA. It's not published by Origin. Of course, Origin's been purchased by EA at this point, but there isn't any connection between Origin and System Shock. But then System Shock leads to Thief, it leads to Bioshock, it leads War Inspector, after he leaves Origin, who had been the producer on Ultima Underworld, to do Deus Ex. So, your Bioshock franchise, your Thief franchise, your Deus Ex franchise, the very idea of a game that is an RPG, but an RPG that incorporates action elements and open world elements and all of these things. Stealth elements, mm-hmm. the ability that you can get around different subjects mm-hmm. and problems. I mean, the Duzek entire franchise is based on that concept. Yeah, you can go in there and shoot up the person as a cybernetic human. Or you could go in there and sneak around them. Or you could go in there, knock them out. Or you could go in there and just run past them and then confuse them and they all get like, well, what was that? Right. It all goes back to Ultima Underworld. And really, obviously, Looking Glass, Blue Sky slash Looking Glass, deserves more of the credit for that, perhaps, than Origin itself does. 
But at least you can say that Origin saw that this was a positive direction to go in and decided to publish it at a time when Blue Sky and, and New Wrath were having difficulty finding a publisher. So Origin, through Ultima Underworld, launches so much of what is central to today's game industry, quite frankly. So that's just another example of how they changed the world. By creating worlds, they changed the world, or at least the world of video games. Mm-hmm. If that's the last thing they ever did, they'd have already been one of the most influential companies ever. But then, of course, after they are acquired by EA, they go another step further, and they basically popularize the MMO. <laughs> yeah, they start that with Ultima Online. I remember when I got Ultima 9, and yeah, you're the avatar walking around in his house. You can actually turn the computer on, and it has a little advertisement for Ultima Online. <laughs> right. This came down to, again, Richard Garriott's kind of philosophy. He really believed in creating coherent worlds that were full of possibility and full of interactions, because the whole thing that got him interested in this whole computer gaming thing in the first place was Dungeons and & Dragons. And so he was always trying to replicate his Dungeons & Dragons experience as well as he could. And obviously there were limitations on that. But he kept trying to overcome those limitations. So by the time he's doing Ultima 7, which is just absolutely the most massive of the single-player Ultimas, everything in the game works. If there's an oven in a house, you can actually bake bread in that oven. If there's an object in Ultima 7, it's not just window dressing. It actually functions in the way that that object is supposed to function. And this, again, goes back to that whole idea of replicating his D&D experience, where you're not limited by anything but your imagination and perhaps certain laws of physics and some rules as represented through die rolls. Obviously, the, the biggest part of Dungeons & Dragons is you play with your friends. Mm -hmm. By the early 1990s, the World Wide Web had arrived, which created this possibility that you could have online games. Sophisticated online games that many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are playing. MUDs already existed, of course. MUDs go all the way back to 1979. But they're mostly text-based. The few attempts to do graphical games haven't gone very well. In part, I think, because of just the limitations of the pre-internet era, LucasArts attempted a game called Habitat that was a graphical mud, essentially. But this was back in the 80s, and you still just didn't have the infrastructure for that kind of thing. In 1991, Neverwinter Nights appeared on AOL using the Goldbox engine, and so that was kind of a thing, but it only got so big. There were still so many constrictions when most internet rates are still by the hour, and you're not really talking about the World Wide Web. You're talking about individual networks you can dial into. It, you AOL, CompuServe. Yeah, the source, Genie. I mean, you just couldn't get a critical mass of players into those kind of systems. But the internet, the World Wide Web, I should say, offered a different potential. So Richard was very interested in translating Ultima into an online game. And EA was completely against it. Completely. 
Because by this point, EA is a big business, and it's run by a businessman, Larry Probst now, not Trip Hawkins. It's a company that's also gone public, and so they're very big on hitting their quarters. They're very big on hitting their forecasts, and they've already started to realize the benefits of this EA sports brand that they had formed that we, of course, talked about in, in the EA episode. So they were already becoming the company that bases future decisions on past performance. We see that this game or this kind of game did well. Let's make a sequel to that game or let's make a game similar to that game, etc. Milk this cow for all it's worth. That's right. And of course, there were no good forecasts for an online game at that time because no online game had been that successful. So he kept pitching, kept pitching. He was turned down the first two times he tried to pitch it. And then he finally got Larry to agree to do it with a shoestring budget of like $250,000 or something like that, just to put a little test project together, a feasibility study together. He wasn't allowed to take anyone off of Ultima to do it. It had to not interfere with any other work. So he takes that and he gets a team together. He goes out into the mud community and finds a guy named Raph Coster and his wife who are involved in a mud. And he finds a few other people that are involved in online communities. And he brings them into Origin and into EA under a guy named Star Long. Richard doesn't take direct development responsibility for Ultima Online. He gives it to a guy named Star Long. And then Star brings in all of these people from MUDs and other similar projects, and they try to to get something together. And they start with Ultima 6, because that was the last top-down Ultima, and start adapting that into a multiplayer environment. Raph Koster is the main designer of the game, he and his wife. And his wife, Kristen, was an economics major in college. And so they're very interested in systems and the way systems work. They do something with Ultima that is still not common in these kind of games today, but they wanted it to be a game where there was a real impact on the world, depending on the way players behave. So they wanted an economy that fluctuated. They wanted prices at stores to fluctuate based on how many players are buying things, supply and demand. They didn't want stores to have all the items a player would want. They wanted there to be a full-scale crafting system so that some players could literally just play the whole game by going out and harvesting resources and turning them mixed through a crafting system and selling those objects. They wanted a real player-driven economy. They wanted an ecosystem where they spawned a certain number of rabbits and a certain number of wolves and a certain number of dragons or whatever, and the wolves would eat the rabbits and the dragons would eat the wolves, and if the players killed too many of the, the rabbits and wolves, then the dragons would have to come further afield to find food and, you know, start attacking players. Some of these systems worked and some of them didn't. The economy thing and the crafting thing ended up being a real hit. The ecosystem thing never worked right because once you put a bunch of players into it, they killed things at such a prodigious rate that the spawners couldn't keep up and they just obliterated the whole ecosystem. There's a shock. When you get a lot of humans together in one place, they ruin the environment. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was kind of the interesting thing about the game is all of these kind of MUDs and all of these kind of early MMOs were based on just leveling and getting better gear and all of this. There, there really wasn't that much questing. 
questing really as the driving force of of an MMO really doesn't start until World of Warcraft. I'm sure there are probably isolated examples people can point to before that. But that was really the first game where questing became the focus of how you leveled up a character to get to end game content. Before that, it was basically just grinding. Go out there, slaughter 20,000 rabbits. <laughs> exactly. That attracts a certain kind of player, but it it's a pretty hardcore kind of player. I think the thing that was interesting about Ultima is that it allowed for other avenues to having fun within the game. You could just do fishing mini games or do crafting or do resource harvesting. You're still not doing questing, but it accommodated a lot of different player types. Plus, it was set in the Ultima universe, which already had a built-in audience, and I think that was important too. When they go to do the beta, when they've gotten something built and they need to start stress testing it with large numbers of people, they invite people to join the beta for free, except that they do have to pay $2 for the CD, because of course, you're not downloading the client over the internet in these days. No. This is, I mean, most people still are operating on 28.8 modems. I mean, 56K modems aren't even that common yet. You're not downloading the client. You're getting the client off a CD. So because of the duplication costs of making all those CDs, they had to charge each player $2 to be part of the beta just for that CD. But other than that, it was completely free to be a part of it. Other than whatever you were paying for your internet, a lot of people were still paying for internet by the hour. (laughs) But (laughs) they weren't getting charged anything from Origin, from Electronic Arts. They get hundreds of thousands of people to sign up for the beta even though they have to literally pay for the privilege. Well, that's when EA wakes up. Like, Mm. wait a minute. Hundreds of thousands, two dollars just for a beta? Hmm. Right. Obviously, that's not going to translate into the same number of people buying a full game, which is going to be more expensive. But there looks like there could be something here. At that point, EA goes all in on Ultima Online and on this idea of doing MMOs when they had been so skeptical before. Of course, Ultima Online does become a big hit for the time. It peaks at probably 250,000 or so subscribers. Many more people than that played it over the years, but we're talking about concurrent subscribers. I think it's still around now. It is, yes. So that was the first game that showed that you could be successful with an MMO. It wasn't the first MMO. Most of the mechanics of it really didn't translate to other MMOs because it ended up being the EverQuest to World of Warcraft kind of gameplay mechanic that was drawn from a a mud called Deku Mud, largely, a more action-oriented game where you have a bar full of skills and classes and skill trees and all of this stuff that ended up being the dominant type of MMO mechanically. But this is where the MMO really becomes a viable genre. So there's another origin innovation. So if you're playing World of Warcraft today, or you're playing Skyrim today, or you're playing a Bioshock game today, or even more loosely, if you're playing a Call of Duty game today, you owe a debt of gratitude to the things that Origin did in the 80s and 90s. Unfortunately... (laughs) As innovative as a company they were, they just, they didn't make it. And EA gets blamed for that. A lot. EA bears some of the blame for it. But it's not fair to give all of the blame to Electronic Arts. When Origin 
was purchased. They were given a level of financial support they had never had before because now they had money rolling in from a mega publisher that they were a part of. They almost immediately doubled the company in size. They hired a bunch of people and they went to more teams active at once and they basically just doubled in size. Well, that ended up really hurting them because it's hard to absorb a lot of new people quickly and kind of indoctrinate them into your culture and your method of doing things. Plus, they really didn't have enough experienced producers, enough experienced managers to handle managing all of the new projects they started up because they had a few good A-plus managers like Warren Spector, but they didn't have enough to manage four or five projects simultaneously. So they end up spending a bunch of money on all these projects, and then they end up having to kill half the projects because they're not going well. All of this was their decision. None of this was forced on them by EA. It's just they were getting so much additional support from EA that they felt that this was their opportunity to grow and expand and do great things. Once that didn't work, then EA started paying much closer attention to them and started coming down on them and and dictating more what Origin needs to do. At first, it was more EA viewed Origin as, okay, you must know what you're doing if you're hiring all these people, but once all of these sub-projects go belly up, then EA's like, oh, maybe you don't know what you're doing. We need to have a more guiding hand on you. Right. Partway through that period of well as well, EA starts organizing all of the studios more because they're acquiring more and more studios as they expand. And so they create EA Worldwide Studios. And they put the former head of EA Canada, Distinctive Software, Don Matrick, in charge of Worldwide Studios. So now you're getting to the point where it's a little more corporate assimilation. It's a little more everyone needs to fit within the kind of EA mold. Some companies do better adjusting to that than others. In the case of Origin, it's not necessarily so much that EA forced them to be a certain type of company, but Origin's management really didn't have control of their company anymore at that point, because now you had studio heads that were being assigned centrally from Electronic Arts into all these companies. Robert Garriott did not stay with Origin very long after the sellout. He was more of an entrepreneurial type. He didn't really want to be a middle manager in a larger organization, so he left. Origin got a succession of general managers in, studio managers in. None of them lasted very long. Most of them were kind of using Origin as a stepping stone to other parts of the company. And so there wasn't a real overriding philosophy or focus necessarily in place to ensure that Origin would continue to thrive within the larger ecosystem of electronic arts. It didn't really have champions in the corporate hierarchy that were necessarily fighting for it. And it's very possible, you know, the head of Worldwide Studios, Don Matrick, like I said, had been the founder of Distinctive, which became EA Canada. It's very possible, some Origin people suspect, though there's, this isn't known for certain, It's very possible that he was showing favoritism towards EA Canada when it came time for resources because A, that was his baby, and B, a lot of the sports at that time was being done out of EA Canada. 
the sports was the big driver of Electronic Arts. On top of that, EA had a constantly shifting view of how to handle online gaming in the internet. This was the, the real failing of Electronic Arts. This is the one time that they really, really failed. We talked about in the, in the Teenage Years episode how EA was really great at picking platforms, or at the very least, switching to the correct platform very quickly once they made a mistake. EA never in the 90s, in the period we're talking about, and the early 2000s, never understood the internet. They never did. At first, they saw no value in it. Richard comes to them, let's do Ultima Online, and they're like, no, internet, huh? Then they finally figure it out that there could be something there when Richard has that success with Ultima Online. Then they tell Origin, we're going to make all sorts of MMOs now. We'll have a Wing Commander game, and we'll have a Privateer game, Privateer being a spinoff of, of Wing Commander that's more focused on space trading like Elite. We'll have Ultima Online 2. I remember that one being in production. And it's like, why are you doing Ultima Online 2? You're, all you're going to do is cannibalize Ultima Online. But this is a company that thinks in terms of creating sequels to successful products. They're not used to this idea of an MMO, which is you build one product, and as long as you keep updating it and expanding it, that one product will keep attracting loyal users for years. They didn't have a concept of that. I don't think it was until World of Warcraft where the whole thing of like expansion pack, which the whole new world thing became big, or did well, somebody ever, early one? EverQuest. EverQuest, EverQuest did, do did that. that. And Ultima Online had expansions, too. I mean, okay. th this expansion thing goes back. But at the very beginning, <laughs> EA didn't have any conception of that. So they start them on all of these MMOs, but then they kind of pivot again. They, they start EA.com, which is their attempt. It's a separate subsidiary that's their attempt to create online content and create an online presence. Through EA.com, they've swung back around to this idea that browser games are going to be big. Online portals are going to be big. Things like the MSN, you know, the Microsoft Network, or Pogo, where you have an online portal that's tied to something, and then there's all sorts of little fun casual games to, to play on them. Yahoo. Right, Yahoo does that. Now this is going to be the future. And so they really start focusing on that more than necessarily MMOs. And then they started work on a different science fiction MMO at Westwood called Earth and Beyond and decided they didn't need multiple science fiction MMOs going on at the same time. So when they started that, they canceled Privateer Online at Origin. Wing Commander Online had already been canceled even before that because they needed people to start working on Ultima Online 2 because they decided that that sequel was important. And then all the people that had been on Wing Commander Online and were shifted to Ultima Online 2 quit because they were sci-fi fans. They weren't, they didn't want to work on Ultima Online 2. So then Ultima Online 2 doesn't have the people it needs, and it eventually dies. And it's like they keep greenlighting these projects, these multiplayer projects, but they keep canceling them 
because they conflict with stuff that's going on in other parts of the company. And it just seems like because they don't have a consistent studio manager and because EA's priorities in online are shifting so much during the CA.com period, they essentially get lost in the shuffle is what it feels like to me and keep getting passed over and overlooked and having their projects canceled out from under them. Meanwhile, poor Richard Garriott, who at first had been told, don't make Ultima online if it's going to interfere with the single-player Ultimas, Mm -hmm. is now struggling to finish his third trilogy of Ultima games with Ultima 9 because now they're saying make nothing but online games and we don't really need another Ultima. Right, and Ultima 9 was very, very buggy and barely got out the door. There's actually some tests things that are still in the game as a result of this in the start of the game there's actually a gate outside of the avatar's house and you can bake bread this goes back to ultimate everything can be used thing Mm -hmm. and you can make this plethora of bread then create this bridge or stairwell that will let you go over the gate that they threw in there just to prevent players from getting to the test area and you see all of these portals that jump you to different parts of the game Mm -hmm. pretty much because that game barely got out the door and it was only through richard's persistence that he wanted to wrap up this trilogy that anything got out at all it's amazing that it ever got out that's just because once the online thing happened they just didn't care about the single player content coming out from origin anymore They tried to turn it into their MMO studio, but that just kind of ran afoul with other priorities once EA.com was established, and so it ended up just adrift. In 2000, Richard Garriott is told that his services are no longer required at EA. Of course, it was treated as a resignation in the press, but he was fired. He was let go. All of the projects of the company were pretty much canceled. At that point, they were working on a Harry Potter online game as well because the Harry Potter franchise had been licensed. And most of the new stuff was just canceled and Richard Garrett was let go. The company limped on for a few more years as a subsidiary until finally they just shuttered the whole thing in 2004. And that was kind of the ignominious end of Origin Systems. Which is sad. And Richard did go on and formed his own company again. With his brother again, Robert. Destination Games, which was a deliberate play because... Origin, destination. Yes, Yes, you start at your point of origin and you end up at your destination. So one of their games was one that I actually tried out at the time because I was looking for an MMO and I'm actually holding it in my hands right now. Still has its box and everything. Richard Garriott's Tableau Vasa, complete with manuals and a whole bunch of old stuff here. Right. Well, when he got let go by Origin, he first thing he did was call up his brother Robert, who liked being an op- entrepreneur, and said, let's, let's do this again, essentially. They ended up getting in with NCSoft, which uh, was a massive Korean company, big in MMOs. NCSoft wanted to create a game that would have an international following. They wanted something that would appeal both to the hardcore players in Korea, where there was a thriving MMO market, but would also appeal to American players. And so their idea had been to create a game jointly with Korean staff and American staff working together to create this joint game. 
that ended up not working at all. The communication barriers and cultural barriers were just way too high. They weren't agreeing on anything. And so they finally had to scrap that. The American staff, Richard Garrett and Star Long, who he also brought with him, the guy that started Ultima Online, basically had to start over from scratch. And at that point, they probably should have literally started over from scratch and completely scrapped Tabula Rasa and gone back to a blank slate. But they decided that they had been promoting that enough already that it was a name that had some value. And so rather than starting over, they kind of tried to salvage what they already had from their previous development with the Koreans, get something out in a short period of time, and then just be like, well, we'll, we'll improve it once it's live, because you can do that with MMOs. And it turned out that it was just it was just too flawed when it launched. I mean, they did try to upgrade it and continue to improve it as time went on, but it never attracted the player base it needed because it was too flawed at the beginning that nobody was really willing to give it a chance. And so that that's one that didn't make it. But yeah, that's basically the the story of Destination Games in a nutshell. And then NCSoft fired Richard while he was in space. Richard Garriott spent a bunch of money and got to go into space. And when he was still in uh, quarantine, when he came back from space, they told him that he was resigning and they'd already typed up his uh, statement to the people. And... You're gone, and we're going to make you sell all your stock now. Not going to let your options, let you hold on to your options. And this was at the height of the recession, so that was no good. So he ended up suing them. Remarkably, in the suit, they tried to claim that they could do that to his options because he wasn't fired. He quit. They tried to claim that they didn't fire him. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they lost that, that suit because that's just bizarre, and so he got his money. Uh, now he's found another company, Portalarium, and he's working on Shroud of the Avatar, which he kickstarted, which is a spiritual successor to the Ultima games. He can't use the Ultima name. It's still owned by EA, but it's, it's his spiritual successor. So he's still in the industry, just like Chris Roberts of Wing Commander fame is still in the industry. He left for a while to produce movies, and then he came back and kickstarted Star Citizen, which has made tens of millions of dollars and has no end to development in sight. That's a whole other story we won't get into here. But the point is, these origin people are still active and are still trying to maintain the spirit of the worlds that they created when they were at origin, because they do still resonate with a lot of people, even though the whole thing didn't end well. But it's, it's just, it's a good cautionary tale because it shows how the industry can start with small, idealistic companies with just a couple of products that they're passionate about. And then eventually, as the market matures, you have to go big or go home. And then sometimes when you end up going big, you can't integrate very well with, with your new corporate overlords. And the shifting priorities and profit chasing of a big company aren't always... They're not always in line with what creative wants to do. That's right. So that's, in a nutshell, the, the story of Origin Systems, who once upon a time created worlds. We will miss you, Origin System, and all the joys you brought us during the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s.
All right, since I usually have Alex tell us what uh, we're going to talk about next, I thought I'd bring it up this time and say we've talked about Sierra tangentially a lot in the various episodes, even this one. I don't think we've actually talked about Sierra at all, really. Do you think so, Alex? No, not really. And of course, it's very important, too, because it's another one of these early companies, and they're they're a, an, an interesting case study in contrast to Origin because they they end up going away too. Sierra doesn't exist anymore. But they took the path that Origin didn't, which was instead of being acquired by another company, let's make ourselves bigger and better and bolder. And then they became a big company. But after that, they did ultimately decide to become acquired as well and that didn't work well for them. So it's just, it's another story of how a company can go from small idealistic publisher to corporate giant to falling apart in, in this volatile video game industry. So sure, Sierra Online. All right. We'll talk about Sierra Online and all of its fun next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com, email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a creative commons attribution license outro music is bacterial love by Roland music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a creative commons attribution license mm-hmm.